Well, good morning. Good morning. All right, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. From Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and then we will hop over to 1 Corinthians 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, these are the words of God. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will look at verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are gracious and faithful and good. We are oftentimes foolish and feckless, and yet in your mercy you love us dearly. We thank you for this great love exhibited in the gospel, and I pray that you would help us to see, help us to hear, and help us to embrace and apply this comprehensive gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's an honor to join the Saints of Faith OPC here this weekend. I'm grateful for the opportunity last evening to share about health as it relates to the kingdom of God. And of course, I'm also delighted to spend more time with you here this morning as we look at God's word together. I want to talk this morning about the comprehensive gospel, the comprehensive gospel, the King Jesus gospel that we confess and proclaim. And I'm doing this not because uh, no one here is unable to describe the glories of the gospel, but because I believe that it is always appropriate to check the foundation and make sure it's secure, lest the building collapse and fall on all of us. Paul reminded the Corinthian church of the gospel, and he writes in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So, for me, to revisit the gospel of the kingdom with you all today is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So I join the Apostle Paul. Part of the reason I wanted to talk about the gospel itself, out of all the things that can be exegeted and exposited from Scripture, Part of the reason I wanted to talk is because it's indicated in the title, the comprehensive gospel. 
I believe that the Bible compels us to view the gospel in a comprehensive way. And this is because the church has a prophetic ministry to carry forth out into the world. That is, the church should be doing something with her confession. We should be engaged in pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. That's our mantra at Cross and Crown Church in Northern Virginia. Cornelius Van Til once said, The Bible is authoritative over everything of which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. If the Bible is authoritative over everything of which it speaks, and if it, is in fact, it does in fact speak of everything, then it follows that the church's prophetic ministry ought to go into the world and deal with whatever issues that are going on. Far too many Christians have divorced the gospel of the kingdom from the authority of the scriptures, and in doing so have retreated from the world, failing to be the salt and the light that we have been commanded by our Lord to be. Perhaps you've heard this before. We shouldn't be dealing with those issues. They are political or they are cultural issues. We're supposed to just preach the gospel. I've been told that several times. Now, this is what we call the fallacy of a false dilemma. The fallacy of a false dilemma. I don't have to choose between preaching the gospel or bringing the authority of the Word of God to a particular issue. I don't have to choose between those two things as if those are the only two things I have in front of me. Now, I'm convinced that I can and we should be able to do both things. And it is my conviction that far too many Christians have chosen only to do one of those things, which ironically, this, this just preach the gospel language is rarely seen on streets or college campuses or at abortion clinics where the idols of our culture currently reside. Consequently, what they really mean is, we'll just talk about the milk of the word in our comfortable church buildings. That's typically the responses I get. Now, a definition is in order, and then we will get to our texts. The gospel, the word gospel, euangelion in Greek, the word gospel simply means good news. It is the royal announcement of the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is a royal announcement. It's the royal announcement. Uh, whenever a Caesar or a king was born, there would be a royal proclamation that we would be sent out into the world. And that's what we do. We herald this gospel. It's a royal announcement of the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And this announcement is based on and rooted in the work of Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a perfect life. We know from the text that he died according to the scriptures and he was buried. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures three days later. After spending post-resurrection time with his disciples, he ascended into heaven in fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 in order to sit at the right hand of the Father. To him was given dominion and glory and honor and a kingdom that'll never end, that sort of language from Daniel 7. Now, we also know from Isaiah 9 that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Speaking, of course, of uh, the child. Um, Isaiah is a wonderful passage around Christmas time, but uh, people don't connect the kingdom of God with the birth of Jesus, but we should, in fact. Why else would we 
describe Herod's great paranoia when they found out another king was going to be born. The terms and conditions of Christ's newly established covenant treaty are now being offered in the world for the healing of the nations. So if, if, the, if the gospel is truly this comprehensive, as I'll argue this morning, then we need to actually apply its comprehensiveness. Go ahead and look at our text here. First, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Quite literally in the Greek language, it's at arm's length. It's very near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I picked this text this morning because I find it astounding that these are the first words, by the way, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll note that those are the first words out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The very first words. There is no birth story in Mark. We have the birth story in Matthew and Luke. John doesn't have a birth story, neither does Mark. There is no genealogy here. Matthew and Luke pay close attention to the genealogy. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew uh, situates it mostly within Abraham and David, those two key figures in history. But in Mark, there's basically a brief quotation from Isaiah. There's a swift introduction of John the Baptist, the John the Baptizer. And immediately we meet Jesus at his baptism, where the father... Uh, says, this is my beloved son. So, Jesus is essentially a new Moses. As a new Moses, he is coming to bring about a new and final exodus. So, Jesus goes from his baptism, we're told, into the wilderness. Now, if you recall, Israel was brought out of Egypt through the waters of baptism, what we call the Red Sea, that great parting of the sea. And then, where did they go? They went out into the wilderness again where they roamed 40 days, 40 nights, many of whom complained, and uh, some died as a result of their complaint. But they were, uh, they were in the wilderness, and this was before they got to the promised land. Now, this is kind of a, a... I'm reading between the lines here with regard to Mark. Jesus is experiencing Israel's baptism... He himself was sinless, didn't need to be baptized for any sort of reason, but he was identifying with his covenant people. He was baptized. He was being washed with his people. And then he goes into the wilderness. When we read a text like this, we should be thinking, ah, that's Israel again. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is a new Moses. Uh, Hebrews emphasizes the fact that Jesus is a new Joshua. So there, there are all these concepts floating around in the, in the New Testament. But here, Jesus goes back through that experience to go back to, to Egypt to get his people. That's Mark's literary point. He goes into the waters and out into the wilderness. So Jesus is going back to Egypt to get his people. Egypt is ultimately a sign of Satan's sin and death, all that's wrong with the world. Death, of course, is the ultimate exile. And think about this for a moment. What might Jesus say to Pharaoh upon arriving as a new Moses to Egypt? What might he say? What would his first words be? Well, we have them right here in this passage. He came into Galilee, where his, where his ministry starts here in Mark, and he proclaims, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what does this mean? 
Well, let me offer up an extended translation and interpretation, and it's going to go like this. Jesus was essentially saying, everything from the dawn of history is now rushing forward in this moment. Time, space, all of it now belongs to me. It was always mine, but I have come to put an end to the, the rebellion. What I am doing in my ministry, Pharaoh, is bringing with me the rule and reign of God himself, what we call the kingdom of God. My father has always been the king of his kingdom. After all, the mutual love and fellowship that I have with the Father and my spirit has spilled over into creation. I am the word who made all things, and I am here to take on the yoke of the kingdom by purchasing a people who will in turn transform the world. What I am doing begins now. It's happening as I speak in this moment. And your job, Jesus says is to repent, to turn away from the idols, to turn away from the idolatry, to turn away from the love of the world, the love of mammon, the serving of a false god, to repent from that, to turn away, to walk away, change your mind, and thus your direction, and your job is to believe the good news. In other words, Jesus, the new Moses, goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh being Satan, sin, and death. That's what's going on in the first chapter of Mark. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the kingdom, and the preaching of the kingdom is a preaching of redemption. Jesus is gathering his elect, the sheep who hear his voice, and he is bringing them back out of Egypt all over again. But this is the final exodus. Now the translation and interpretation offered here is found by basically piecing together the entire Bible as the Bible cast and set forth a vision for the restoration of all things. Sort of the uh, Isaiah 66, new creation language, 65 and 66. God desires to dwell with his people, but he doesn't need concrete and rebar. He doesn't need gold. He doesn't need silver. We know from Scripture, even Solomon acknowledges this at the dedication of the temple. God cannot be contained to a house made by human hands. Paul says the same thing in the book of Acts. God cannot be contained. How dare we try to reduce the God of the universe to a space and a time and a location? How dare we do that? So God doesn't need anything. We know he doesn't need anything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the animals are his. All the trees are his. All the plants. Everything belongs to him. Jesus Christ, in the gospel of the kingdom, has come to reclaim God's territory, space, and time in order to bring about the fullness of God's glory on the earth. That is the gospel that Jesus starts preaching in Mark. That is everything that's going on with the meaning of the gospel of the kingdom of God. When we speak of the gospel, and when Jesus speaks of the the gospel, he does so, as indicated here in Mark, with an understanding of and an association with the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a long text. I'm not going to read all 58 verses. Paul says in verse 1, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So the gospel isn't just a thing you did when you were 10 years old in church when you believed. 
It's something you stand in now, currently in the present, by which you are being saved. Salvation is an ongoing process. There's justification and immediate grace alone, faith alone. Sanctification comes after that, of course. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul's a messenger. He received it. He's dispensing it. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one, one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Now, I only want to make a couple of observations and comments here. First, Paul roots salvation in the gospel. We, we know that. Our job is to hold fast to it. Unless we believe in vain, those who are not holding fast to the gospel have probably believed in vain. As a missionary and a preacher, he delivered the good news like a good messenger. News is supposed to be delivered. That good news is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Christ, Christos in Greek, is simply the uh, Greek translation of Meshiach in Hebrew, which is the Messiah. He's the anointed one, the king. He, di he died. He was buried. He was raised. Paul says all of that is in accordance to the Old Testament. Of course, the validity of the message, we know, is confirmed by the fact that Christ appeared after his resurrection to five, more than 500. But many people stop there, assuming the gospel to be solely about personal salvation. But I believe that's a mistake. Rather, Paul continues to expand on the gospel in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and talks about its implications. He talks about Christ being established as Lord. One of my favorite verses is in, in verse 25. For he must reign until his enemies are put under his feet. Do you want to talk about gospel power? There are enemies out there in the world that need to be footstooled. And the gospel proclamation and witness of the church is the footstooling of the nations. He closes the chapter out explaining that death, oh death, where is your sting? You all are familiar with that passage, I'm sure. Death has been defanged and thus defeated. And it says, he says in the very last verse, therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, on the basis of all of this, the death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ as the second and final Adam, the giver of a whole new human race, therefore, based on all of the fact that he's defeating his enemies right now as we speak, based on that, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's gospel power. Essentially, Paul is saying that the gospel gives you new life, so act like it. From new birth to your grave, Christ is King and Lord, so live your life in service to Him and His kingdom. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, now that we've looked at those uh, passages, let's build on it. When it comes to obeying the gospel in all areas of life, in every area of life, 
we need to know a few things. One, we need to know the objective truth and facts of the gospel. Two, we need to know how those facts work themselves out. In other words, what is the purpose? What, is, what are they supposed to do? Three, we need to understand the qualitative nature of how the gospel is implemented in real time. So what are the facts? How do those facts work themselves out? And what is the qualitative nature of implementing it in real time? What is the unvarnished objective truth of the gospel? I'm going to give you some categories. These are just biblical categories. First one, creator versus creation. One of the most important themes in the mind of Paul. That's Romans chapter 1. God is the sovereign. He's the covenant Lord. He is the creator. Man is the creature. You don't walk away from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 thinking that man is somehow God. But what do we have walking around in the streets of our nation and in the world? A bunch of men walking around thinking they're God. So we have to have an insistence upon, in our gospel preaching, a distinction between creation and creator. Being the covenant Lord who has initiated all things, we must know our place in relationship to him and know the calling he has on our lives. What is the calling that God has on our lives? Number two, dominion. Dominion. We are called, according to Genesis 1, 26-28, to fill the earth and subdue it, which means we are to make it productive and useful for the kingdom. We are supposed to take the world and make it productive and useful for the kingdom. All businesses, all politics, everything should serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has many facets to it. Individual purpose in the kingdom of God. What, is, what, is, what has God called you to? Has God, God called you to you know, uh, teach gun classes to people so they can practice the, you know, defending um, the protection of life? Has God called you to, to have, have a bunch of children and, and change diapers? Has God called you to be uh, a lawyer? Has God, what has God called you to? Because those are all noble tasks in the kingdom. They are all parts of the functioning of dominion in the world for the people of God. And we should value them as such. Strong, godly families and relationships are all a part of this aspect of dominion too. Covenant families. Economic prosperity. And honesty in your business dealings and transactions. Just weights and measures like money. Civil government that upholds justice and righteousness when dealing with criminals. Churches who are evangelizing, planting churches, and making disciples, and so on. Those are all aspects of our dominion calling. Third, preaching of the gospel requires clarity on sin and salvation. Sin and salvation. Man has rebelled against God, and therefore he needs God in order to be restored by God, from God, for God. He needs to understand what sin is, what idolatry is. And we also need to know what salvation is. Jesus Christ is the only Lord and Savior that can give man this salvation. Dealing with his sin fully and finally on the cross and through the resurrection. And on top of that, blessing man with covenant status and freedom to carry out his purposes. Somewhat of what we talked about last night. When the kingdom of God invades some territory, everything that's left in its wake now needs to be transformed. So salvation is more than just, I'm going to heaven when I die. 
Salvation is about the presence of the kingdom actively as we obey Christ in every area of life. Four, incarnation and ascension. Jesus became a man in order to atone for sin. Jesus was raised a true resurrected man, and now he sits on David's throne in the heavens, ruling and reigning, putting his enemies under his feet. We need to know why Jesus came. We also need to know what he's up to right now. And what he's up to right now is putting his enemies under his feet. Five, revelation and authority. God has revealed his perfect will to man in his son and in his word, which is the Holy Spirit-inspired, perfectly authoritative Holy Bible. Uh, I can tell you right now, uh, going on to a college campus and uh, engaging with the next generation, uh, I, I call them whiny socialists because that's inevitably what comes out. But when you come with the authority of the Word of God, they squirm. It's like shining a light with all the uh, you know, critters <laughs> under, the, under the refrigerator. Uh, they start to squirm. And, and they all have a view of authority. They, all, they think they're the authority. Well, I believe this. I believe my ethics are this. I support abortion for this reason, or I, I support this for that reason. You're not the authority. God's Word is the authority. We need to have clarity as the people of God and what truly is revealed to us in His Word and what is authoritative. God has given His laws in His Word so that we can carry them out in obedience in every area of life. Which means that any authority can only really be a true authority to the degree that it aligns with the Bible. Six, responsibility and judgment. Man is entirely responsible to God in every area of life. Therefore, given God's complete and unending authority, he is accountable to God in every area of life. All men, all women, all children in all nations are to respond positively to God's summons to obedience, to order the affairs of their life in accordance to God's principles and commands and laws. I think part of the reason the church has lost influence in the world is because we've just sort of asked for permission. Could I take five minutes and share the gospel with you? Preach it. Don't ask for permission. These are people who need the gospel. They are stuck in their sins. They need to know they're responsible to God, and they need to know that they are under the judgment of God should they fail to repent. And while we exercise proper judgment in the world, God can be expected to pour out his covenant blessings as we mature and work for his kingdom. So those are all the facts of the gospel, things that we need to be considering when we think about the preaching and the heralding of this good news. They're unchangeable, they're irreducible, and they're uncompromising. We, we cannot explain them away, we cannot wish them away, or ignore them. We cannot escape from the commands of Christ, nor should we want to. After all, God punishes all evildoers. That is Psalm 5.5. 5. So then, what is the purpose of the, and the goal of these facts? Well, simply put, we must assert the gospel of the kingdom in the world, challenging every philosophy, every philosophy, every idea, every system of thought and action with Christ's gospel. It, 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 sort of what we delved into last night with the health issue. 
We need to be able to take the gospel into those areas, and we need to challenge every philosophy, every thought, every system of thinking. All we have today going on in our college campuses is all rehashed enlightenment nonsense. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the center of the world. Man gets to decide whatever he wants. That's the philosophy, and if it goes uncontested, it's only going to get worse as our culture degrades into anarchy. We need to preach the gospel. So (laughs) that's another way of saying we weren't given the gospel so that we just contemplate it from time to time. There's something that has to be done with it. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is the church militant. What is clear from the Bible is that the gospel does something in the world. It doesn't just save souls for heaven. It breaks the bonds of institutional slavery and oppression and destroys systems and obstacles that go against the knowledge of Christ. If it is the true gospel, an ultimate and authoritative gospel, and if it is a gospel whereby men and nations and institutions are ultimately judged then we can conclude that it is a gospel that must be boldly and uncompromisingly declared individually, locally, nationally, into the world. And finally, how is it to be carried out? The short answer, how is the gospel to be carried out? The short answer is hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. That's how all the great saints of old battled from the early church through the Middle Ages, the time of the Reformation, blood, sweat, and tears. The church is called to be militant in our assault against these lofty speculations and strongholds. We, the people, need, we, we need people, generally, to see the sham that is man's law. We need people to be exposed to the riches of God's grace over against the chains of man's wrath. The battle for the hearts and minds of men, women, and children is going to be fought in the trenches of injustice and oppression. It it isn't going to be fought primarily in our churches where we gather and we sing and we smile, though sometimes there is a fight simply to get Christians involved in these matters. But it's going to be fought out there. It's going to be fought out there in the streets, in business, at the university, at the abortion clinic, in the public square. And you wonder why the church has lost its saltiness in our current disheveled culture. For the past 40 or 50 years, churches have spent more time on building gyms and hiring youth pastors with skinny jeans to seem cool. They have spent more money on useless buildings Think, think of the million dollar, it's basically got a Chick-fil-A and Starbucks in there, that sort of thing. Millions of dollars on these buildings that are used basically two hours a week, and they haven't invested any of that time or money or effort into pressing the gospel into the world. We need Christian minds to tear down the broken philosophies of men, and we need to be loud about it. Consequently, if the church is doing its job, it will be salt and light, which isn't just a cute slogan to slap on a coffee mug. Salt 
is judgment. Light is healing, and we need both. Salt, salt provides the parameters for justice and righteousness. Light provides an illuminated path for obedience and righteousness, which means then that the church will not only care for its people through, of course, serving and giving and strategic planning, but it will also rub up against the world in order to give it the direction it so desperately needs. Our world right now, do you, you know why there's so much confusion out there? Because God is judging us. This is the judgment. The massive confusion in media, the confusion from politicians who think they can control every area of your life, all that confusion is there is because God's judging it. These are people stumbling around in darkness, and they need to be led. And will the church do it? The church needs to give direction. Our current humanistic experiment where we try to govern ourselves by whatever we think is good and right and true has obviously failed and flawed. The bloated central government with federal and state is doing what is the functional equivalent of drinking too much and running around the house in the dark. How's that for a visual? It needs help. It needs answers. The world needs these things. And what we must do is offer those things and those answers up with humility and assertiveness, boldness, and courage. And I will tell you this, it's going to be very difficult. That's what picking up your cross is supposed to be. He said, pick up your cross and follow me, not pick up your pillow and let's take a nap. Pushing the antithesis in the world is not without pushback, but we have a commander-in-chief who is good to us, who has given what we need for life and godliness, and therefore, instead of annotating the gospel to death, trying to explain it away so we don't have to be accountable and responsible to it, we need to drink that thing straight down and we need to be willing to lay it all on the line. This good news is comprehensive because the bad news that's out there is comprehensive. Sin has touched every area of man. His heart, his mind, his emotions, his physical body, his environment, his plans, his pursuit of wealth, his organizing efforts, his love, his grace, his wrath, his mercy, his desires, his pursuit of relationships, his parenting, his ability to empathize, his ability to govern himself, his ability to govern others, his charity, his virtue, his motivation, and all of his thinking and doing. Sin has touched everything. Sin has encroached on every area of life, so why wouldn't we proclaim a gospel that touches every area of life? One of my favorite hymns, Joy to the World, which is uh, not about the second coming. It's about the first coming of Christ. That's why it's a Christmas song, Christmas hymn. Remember the line about far as the curse is found? Far as the curse is found, that's where the gospel goes. If, the, if sin has cursed it, the gospel has to go there. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus Christ established 2,000 years ago is an entire political, that is, Jesus is Lord, and economic, thou shalt not steal, ordering of life that infiltrates and expands throughout the world in the self-sacrificial, Holy Spirit-empowered missionary activity of the church. This kingdom is comprehensive because sin is comprehensive. It is the all-encompassing authority of heaven taking the full responsibility for sin, that's Jesus, 
our substitute, in order to reclaim men, women, and children for the kingdom purpose of loving and serving and and obeying God in every single area of life so that the nations can experience true gospel healing. In all of his thinking and doing, Jesus Christ of Nazareth entered into the world to proclaim and enact the kingdom of heaven because it's the kingdom of heaven that heals men and nations and institutions. And I pray for a fresh wind and fresh fire of the Holy Spirit so that this comprehensive gospel can be unashamedly proclaimed among all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as a people humbled by your word. We are not to be a haughty, arrogant people, but a humbled people. Father, we come to learn and apply your word, and I pray that the text that we have looked at, the application that we have looked at, that it would be something that would challenge us and embolden us. Father, we look around at this decrepit world and we see it broken and in need of leadership and need of direction, and we know that the gospel is the only thing that can, apply, can, uh, can carry it forth. So we ask and pray that you would help us with that endeavor. Father, give us the grace and the mercy and the power to go forth into the world. I pray for the saints of Faith OPC here in this community of Indiana. I, I pray for a, a reformation, Lord, and a revival. But before reformation and revival, we need repentance. So we ask that you would give it. So we honor you with our words today, our songs, and our prayer. And we also honor you with our tithes and offerings. In Christ's name, amen.